Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we are going to talk to Erica Dick about her co-authored book on the history of Hollywood Hospital in Greater Vancouver. Hollywood Hospital was one of the few centers for the alternative use of psychedelic drugs and the treatment of alcoholism and trauma in North America in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Erica Dick is Professor of History and Canada Research Chair in the History of Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan. She is the author of monographs and articles on the history of eugenics, psychiatry, and psychiatric treatment, including psychedelic research and treatment in Canada. She was the author of Psychedelic Psychiatry, LSE from Clinic to Campus, published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2008. She has now co-authored with Jesse Donaldson a book entitled The Acid Room, The Psychedelic Trials and Tribulations of Hollywood Hospital, published by Anvil Press. Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Greg. First of all, can you give us a snapshot of the history of Hollywood Hospital? Yeah, this is a, a fascinating clinic that uh, was located in New Westminster, British Columbia. And for people familiar with Vancouver and Greater Vancouver, if we think about psychedelics, we often sort of perhaps think about Kitsilano or think about sort of the downtown east side. But here was this private clinic that was a little bit more elite, a little bit sort of outside of the uh, what we might think of as the heyday or the epicenter of psychedelic research and experimentation in Vancouver. It opened originally as a tuberculosis sanatorium in 1921, but it came under new direction in the 1950s, and it was at that moment that it started to embrace this alternative therapy of psychedelic research, mostly for addictions, but also for a few different kinds of uh, diagnostic categories. Well, tell us why you think Hollywood Hospital should be better known in terms of the history and use of psychedelics in psychiatric care in Canada and perhaps North America as a whole. There are a couple of really interesting things about Hollywood Hospital that I think, in some respects, set it outside the frame. One, I'll say uh, to you, Greg, uh, but for your listeners as well, that this was a private clinic. It was a clinic that didn't really fit within the confines of Medicare, so it predates Medicare, but then it also sort of retained its private um, space. It, re it remained a, a private health provider throughout the 1960s into the 1970s. So that's interesting in terms of where clinical care was occurring, particularly in addictions research in Canada. It also, you know, though I, I just mentioned it was in New Westminster, not in Kitsilano, not in the downtown east side in Vancouver, um, but here we also have a really interesting space where Vancouver has been Canada's sort of epicenter for harm reduction act activity and activism. And Hollywood Hospital, I think, deserves to be considered within that longer history of harm reduction and thinking about addictions in different ways. So Vancouver had a lot to offer. And lastly, a piece of this, not, not the least important one, but just another piece is 
the way that psychedelics are now kind of um, encouraging uh, reflection and resurrection, some people are calling it a renaissance, a psychedelic renaissance, I think it's important to look back at some of these research centers from the 1950s, 60s, and spilling into the 1970s to understand why they invested in psychedelic research in the first place, and then what closed those doors to research. And so Hollywood, I think, deserves to be put on that map, both for the kind of um, health policy components, but also for the kind of psychedelic research and treatment that was taking place at the time. Now, we at the Champlain Society are always interested in how documentary sources can be preserved so that we have the raw material uh, on which we can better understand, interpret, and reinterpret the history of Canada. So in that context, can you recount for us the backstory of how you came to discover the primary documents you and Jesse Donaldson used to recreate the history of Hollywood Hospital? Thank you for that question. I, this is actually kind of a, a fascinating story in and of itself. And as a historian, I, I'm sort of this story is just the kind of stuff that gets you up in the morning and gets you wanting to go to the archives. Um, so I'll say at the outset that Hollywood Hospital has this kind of larger-than-life reputation, and we can follow it through newspapers and with the release and digitization of more and more newspapers now. We were able to track some of the stories, but those stories were, like I said, larger-than-life often. Claims of these um, film stars and elite people coming into this hospital, being flown in in private jets, exorbitant amounts of money, and we couldn't tell what was true. And of course, we were looking for the stories beneath those and the archival sources that might help us to verify some of these claims. So here's the fun part. Uh, we know that there were hundreds of patients who visited this hospital. The British Columbia archives claimed to have no, um, no information about this. I had done some research in Saskatchewan on psychedelic psychiatry here, and I had seen a lot of correspondence with Hollywood Hospital with folks in Saskatchewan who were also engaged in psychedelic research. So I had some of the pieces from the edges, but we were missing this major, this major component, the major archival documents. I got a phone call in 2006 from Frank Ogden, a fellow who claims that he's a futurist and a self-trained therapist who worked at Hollywood. And he said that he had all of the patient records in his possession and that he was trying to sell them on eBay. He said he had stories within these boxes that were so amazing and, you know, rich with detail, but also could fetch a fair price, he felt, because there were private stories in there that he could sell. He lived on a houseboat in the Georgia Strait and for years tried to sell these records. And what I've heard, uh, some from communicating with him directly on the phone and others from people who got to know him in the Vancouver area, was that he, he actually lost his houseboat and ended up living, was rather homeless in Vancouver. And some people worked with him to try to get those records brought into the archives. He died, uh, I, I can't recall the exact uh, date when he died, but um, about seven years ago, I think he died. And uh, those records had just then been transferred to the archives. And luckily for me, one of the archivists who I'd already contacted about this and I knew him from other work, phoned me up and said, the records have landed. And I rushed to Victoria, <laughs> <laughs> dropping everything else I had going on and was just so eager and sort of hungry to go through these records, um, which were dazzling in many ways. But I think in some respects, uh, as a historian, they were fantastic. 
if I were chasing those stories about, you know, star-studded elite figures, uh, I was somewhat disappointed in that regard. I think Frank Ogden maybe oversold the dazzling component or, you know, the claims of superstars having landed in in this facility. It's possible that he tampered with the records. Certainly that is very, very possible. But the records themselves are so rich and so detailed um, and so intimate at times that there is definitely a story to be told here of the amazing people who came through, even if they weren't, you know, uh, wealthy film stars or Barbara Streisand was one of the names that came up in the newspaper, but we didn't find any evidence of her coming through. Well, certainly we're introduced to a fascinating cast of characters in this book. And, uh, some of them I know like Aldous Huxley, Humphrey Osman, and Abram Hoffer, people that I'd read about before and people that I've been introduced to through your first book, but I'd never heard of Al Hubbard before. So who was Al Hubbard, also known as Acid Al, and how was he involved in the history of Hollywood Hospital? Al Hubbard is such an incredible character, and he's a wonderful avatar, and it was especially exciting to do work on Al Hubbard in this format. So this book is certainly historically driven, um, but uh, also kind of we try to widen our audience by making it a little bit more creative at times and, and straying perhaps from some of the conventions of academic writing. Al Hubbard is a perfect candidate for doing this kind of writing and this expansive thinking. He, he had many nicknames, um, Johnny Appleseed of Acid uh, or LSD, uh, Captain Trips, simply the captain, um, and he is this enigmatic character. There's another book by Brad Holden, a Seattle-based author, who has written uh, sort of an antecedent to this. So he writes about Al Hubbard and his rum-running days, and he's a bootlegger in the Seattle and Puget Sound region where he clearly is a double agent. And he keeps flipping and he gets into a lot of trouble, but he's also a kind of dazzlingly charismatic person who somehow seems to keep surfacing and sort of landing on his feet. He's very creative. He's very entrepreneurial. Um, And so as the rum running business kind of runs out for him and he sets his sights north in Canada, Vancouver, he bought an island, Damon Island, where he lived. He continues to play this kind of double agent Um, really mysterious character. He doesn't write a lot. He doesn't leave a lot of records, but he certainly leaves or looms large in the memories of people who worked with him. He becomes Canada's sole supplier of LSD, LSD that was imported from Sandoz and Switzerland. And here again, this kind of entrepreneurial spirit takes over and he looks at a variety of ways of making money, but also embedding LSD into a medical framework. One of the things that Al Hubbard does, which again makes him this larger-than-life enigmatic character, is he fakes his credentials. He claims to have an MD at one point, starts writing his name as Dr. Al Hubbard, but he purchased this from a diploma mill. Um, And so he does these kind of shady things, and it makes him a slippery character to follow in the historical record because he pops up in a variety of different places and you never know what's really true. Um, But he's also such a fascinating character for telling this story because he has these really bold ideas, but he doesn't always have the follow through. So the term Hollywood immediately raises the image of uh, movie stars. Um, And it was an image, I think, that was actively propounded by those running the the hospital. How does this image match with the reality that you found in your historical research? 
Yeah, often, you know, the truth that lies behind these things is less interesting, perhaps. But, uh, you know, Hollywood Hospital was named in 1921, not for any connection with California, um, but it had to do with the trees that were growing on the grounds, the Hollywood trees. Um, and so that's where the, the name comes from. And it was a TB sanatorium initially. So, you know, a very distinct historical route there. But I think that the clinic played upon this image of its connection with Hollywood. And absolutely, there were connections to Hollywood in a variety of ways, not only um, sort of the greater Hollywood area or, you know, California and Los Angeles more broadly. People like Aldous Huxley was a consultant. Um, there were a number of people who were networked in with Hollywood Hospital who uh, participated in the research or gave advice or helped to find clients who would come into the hospital. So in that sense, there is a real connection to at least California, if not Hollywood specifically. And there were film stars who came through these doors. And certainly, even when the records don't bear it out really clearly, um, there were definitely film stars who sort of moved through these spaces. One good example, that one of my favorite examples, is Mimsy Farmer. Mimsy Farmer was uh, a woman, an actress in, in L.A. Um, she, one of her famous scenes was in playing a woman who was sort of depending on what you read, freaking out on LSD or simply having an LSD experience. It's in a, a film called Sunset on the Riot Strip. And what we found in digging into this a little bit more was that she had volunteered to come to Hollywood Hospital as a nurse and as a guide. So she had her own experience and then stayed on to sit with people as they went through their experiences. And certainly her her interactions with clients and her own experiences at Hollywood helped her to play that role when she later played in Hollywood, uh, California. Right. It was, there was also some opposition at the time to Hollywood Hospital, its methods, um, the nature of its treatments. What was the nature of this backlash and why was there even a concern at the time? Because after all, LSD and other substances such as mescaline were not yet illegal at that point. Yeah. You know, and this is, a, I think, a fascinating piece that really strikes with some of the Canadiana components. Um, one, I think that this Addictions Research Center or this clinic that was providing sort of elite treatments so they, you had to pay for them, started to get in trouble with um, you know, aligning with the principles of Medicare. It's prior to the Canada Health Act, of course, um, but they're continuing to oper operate in this private way. And there was some pressure, including from inside their network, people who were working in the Saskatchewan clinics, for example, who wanted them to reduce the fees or to get into an alignment with a publicly funded um, center. That's one piece where there's sort of internal financial and policy kind of back and forth. The other thing was, though, when you have someone like Al Hubbard on the payroll who fakes his credentials, flies around the world, brings in different supplies, not just his briefcase of acid which is kind of notorious, but he starts bringing in other kinds of substances as well and opening up or broadening the kind of menu of psychedelic options or at least psychotropic options. Some of the substances weren't even psychedelic. He wanted people to go through this kind of testing phase where they would take carbogen and he would bring his carbogen tank. He was testing things like bringing in a strobe light and some people didn't like this. But one of his other... Uh, innovations or experiments was having a Catholic priest take acid and think about what this meant in spiritual and theological terms. And other people really resented this idea that they would 
take LSD in the presence of a priest. This was about the worst thing that some people could imagine. And so there was this friction building and this tension building about how do you design the appropriate space and the appropriate conditions for optimizing these, this therapeutic encounter? Should it be done in the presence of a priest? Most people said no. Al said yes. Should it be done with empathetic observers? You know, people who have had their own experience with LSD, masculine or psilocybin in this case. What were the doses? And some of that internal tension was also driving and sort of creating these divisions within Hollywood Hospital. And lastly, I'll say that um, this is certainly not unique to Hollywood, but the rising um, evidence of psychedelics being taken outside of a clinical context um, started to also put pressure on clinics that were under, under surveillance you know, what was happening to their supplies? Were Hollywood supplies, Hollywood hospital supplies being fed into UBC campus or Kitsilano uh, flop houses or um, Gastown, uh, were the Gastown riots being fueled at times by um, psychedelics? And there were a number of researchers, including local UBC psychiatrists, who were quite adamant that places like Hollywood and the kind of research that was claiming legitimate psychedelic research was actually fanning the flames of what was a countercultural revolution or a variety of dangerous and risky behaviors associated with drug taking more broadly. Erica, you're our witness to yesterday. So uh, take us back to Hollywood Hospital, let's say in the early 1960s or at the height of uh, its operations any at any time within the 1960s. And take us through what would be your day-to-day -day experience as a typical patient in Hollywood Hospital. Sure. Yeah. So in the end, what we got from Frank Ogden ultimately, or ultimately from the archives, I should say, were 546 patient files. And those files range in the variety and um, diversity of experiences. But to try to give you a, a bit of a sense of those, they certainly, they're very difficult to categorize. We've digitized them and attempted to do this. So to say what is typical, probably I will fudge that a little bit and say, I'll give you an example. Um, because as people experienced psychedelics, they had a wide variety of ways of giving those experiences meaning. Typically, the setup, though, was there would be sort of preparation. So people were sometimes encouraged to read, um, uh, sorry, Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception as a way of trying to understand what they might experience. But soon that shifted from reading that novel to talking to peers, talking to therapists who had been through these experiences and sharing some of those experiences to prepare people. They were asked to, you know, watch their diet and come in it was about $500 a session. As people prepared for the experience, so that it might take a few days ahead of time, they would come in and expect to stay in the clinic for a couple of days. In, in rare cases longer, but usually it was a couple of days, and those accommodations were built into the fee. Usually people would come to the room at about 9 o'clock in the morning, and there was coffee or tea available, and then we have a range of doses often LSD, sometimes LSD with a mescaline chaser, sometimes just mescaline, and later on a little bit of psilocybin as well, which comes from mushrooms. 
The doses varied a little bit, and I think this is part of the calibration and some of the tension that existed as well about trying to standardize those doses. But we know that people taking LSD ranged from 100 micrograms to up to 1,500 micrograms in extreme cases. There was a sense or a theory that um, people suffering from severe alcoholism required larger doses, and so this was kind of an upper limit that they were exploring. The experience itself was sort of choreographed for about eight hours. And when I say choreographed, it's because there were so many other features of the experience that were designed to help to optimize the experience itself, the therapeutic benefits. So making sure that the room was designed to be comfortable with safe and private access to a washroom, with a comfortable couch, maybe a beanbag chair, something for relaxing. There was often artwork. We wouldn't want to have uh, fluorescent lights. There would be dimmed lights, um, not dark, but comfortable, sort of a more home-like atmosphere than you might imagine on a hospital ward. Music was a big part, and the music also became something that was studied. What kind of music? What tempo? What kind of arrangements? At which point in the day or in the experience would you want to have a faster tempo and a slower tempo? All of those things became part of the conversation and the research. To try to create this space that was comfortable um, and allowed people to sort of melt into that experience or really sort of dive into it on their own terms. Everyone went through a medical exam before they were received their dose. So that might be the day before. Uh, everyone was um, accompanied by at least a psychiatrist or an MD, as well as a nurse or a social worker or somebody else in the room who had experience with these drugs. So empathetic observers or guides, which the term that was later applied. The day after, sometimes people had to have uh, Valium or Niacin at the end because the experience would bring up so much material um, that often people found it very difficult to sleep. So it wasn't to sort of cut off a bad trip. It was a, to allow people to sleep and process. And the next day, they were asked to write what they thought this meant to them. And I should say, sorry, that one part that I missed, patients or clients, it's hard to say which ones are patients when some clearly wanted to sort of volunteer for an experience uh, and paid for it, were also asked to answer 12 questions, which was kind of a, a guideline for an autobiography. Why are you here? Tell me about your mother. Tell me about your father. Tell me about what you think you will gain or uh, lose from this experience. Uh, why do you want to do this? Anything significant in your life? Are you married? These kinds of things. Um, and some people wrote one sentence answers. Some people wrote pages and pages of answers. And often those um, those sessions of the sort of that autobiographical reflection was something that many people revisited when they wrote about how the experience brought meaning to them. It wasn't because they were expected to, but often I think that process of writing those things down helped people to re reflect on it later. And I'll give a quick example. You know, people always wrote about what they knew about their mother or father, and sometimes in the on the blue sheets, the day the the day after sheets, they'd say, you know, I wrote in my autobiography that I never felt close to my father, but I've realized. And that will be a kind of opening for a kind of uh, reflective moment. Well, by the early 1960s, a rift had developed between the, you know, medical scientists on the one hand, such as Osmond and Hoffer, and even Aldous Huxley, uh, who was in a different category in many respects. But they were on one side of the issue versus those advocating a more generalized and 
perhaps more recreational use of psychotropics, such as Timothy Leary at Harvard, and of course, Al Hubbard, who you already talked about. Can you tell us more about what caused this rift and whether it had any impact, direct impact or indirect impact on Hollywood Hospital? Yeah, you know, this is something that um, that has really characterized the way that we've understood the history of psychedelics uh, until this point, um, that there's this sort of bubbling up of a counterculture and a number of people who move the conversation far from the clinical environment or far from medical science and start thinking about the ways in which psychedelics might change the way we think as a society or change the way we evolve as humans. Um, and people like Timothy Leary, the Harvard psychologist who lost his job in 1962, um, he's one of those. And this kind of, again, a wonderful avatar who becomes the embodiment of some of these values that represent hope for some, but certainly represent a tr tremendous risk uh, for others, Richard Nixon would, of course, you know, be the the first one to to see the risks involved. He described Timothy Leary as the most dangerous man in America at one point, and partly that was because he was he was really encouraging psychedelic drug use in a way that you know was completely reckless or risk averse. Certainly, according to Nixon. Others like Ken Kesey, who was a literary student at Stanford University, he volunteered for this experience. I recently did some research and met his wife, Faye Kesey, who told me that when Ken signed up for that experience, he'd never even tasted alcohol. He was a he was a very sort of Christian teetotaling guy who becomes one of the sort of father figures of a psychedelic inspired counterculture or, you know, a, a way of questioning American values and writing about it through psychedelics. So what led to the closing of Hollywood Hospital in the end? You know, I, I think that there are a few different things here. And unfortunately, the records are not robust enough for me to confidently say this is the answer. Um, but I will say based on the records that I've seen at the BC archives, but also the correspondence that I've seen with the researchers in Saskatchewan, I think that those internal fissures, those internal divisions were certainly part of it. The, you know, Hollywood environment, the Hollywood hospital environment was moving further away from um, what people like Abe Hoffer, Humphrey Osmond, and as you mentioned, Aldous Huxley, the way they're describing setting up protocols and maintaining a kind of medically robust um, set of research principles, Hollywood starts to drift away from that. And it's partly the financial component. It's partly the way that they're charging patients or clients for these experiences that frustrates some of those other researchers. But it's also the introduction of different ideas, different contexts, different music, strobe lights, et cetera, that makes um, some of the other psychedelic researchers quite nervous. They're worried that things are kind of going off the rails and that this is going to reflect poorly on other psychedelic research. Those internal divisions mean that their network starts to crumble and fray. Um, and certainly someone like Captain Tripp's, Al Hubbard's, you know, very sort of flamboyant uh, use of psychedelics, even though he and Leary didn't get along, maybe they were sort of too similar. Um, but his, he definitely didn't, sorry, Al Hubbard certainly didn't care much for authority. He, you know, he flirted with ways of challenging authority in a number of different venues and settings. And I think this probably, well, it did, it very much frustrated some of the other contemporary researchers. 
Ultimately, BC Health also clamped down on what was going on in Hollywood Hospital. The uh, director, Ross McLean, was trying to pay his bills on time and whatnot, but there were some financial problems in the hospital as well that led to its demise and its closure ultimately. So we're now in a period that's marked by a real resurgence in the interests of the use of psychotropics such as LSD and mescaline for therapeutic purposes. Can you just briefly describe this trend and what lessons can we draw from both a clinical and policy perspective from the history of Hollywood Hospital that you've written? Yeah, you know, in the last, I'd say in the last five to seven years, we've really seen an uptick in the mainstreaming of psychedelic science. Um, it has continued. There's sort of an underground period and there's been more interest over the years, but really it's moved quite dramatically and in significant ways. Health Canada has now made several approvals. I think we're now getting close to 60 approvals for psilocybin, for end-of-life anxiety, and for general anxiety as well. And I think the conversation is changing. As the conversation changes, uh, you know, I say as a historian and to your history-loving audience that I think it's really important that we look back to understand what led to the sort of push of psychedelics into the underground or, or the movement into the other regulatory spaces. If we don't understand what happened in the past, I don't think that we can fully appreciate what's at stake going forward. And I think some of that comes down to legal frameworks, regulatory frameworks, and policy pieces. But another part I would say is more cultural. And I'll, I'll try to be brief, but I think some of the hope that was imbued in psychedelic research in the 1950s and into the 60s came from the way that psychedelics unlocked different ways of thinking about mental health, addiction, trauma, pain. It created a different kind of vocabulary and a different intellectual set of investments. We see examples across disciplines, but also a way that we can imagine a single dose therapy helping people to see themselves differently. It blends psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, and psychopharmacology together in interesting and creative ways, but ways that did not survive the sort of steamrolling effect of randomized controlled trials and the desire to reduce risk and measure risks in different ways. And I think now, almost 70 years later, there's again a kind of optimism for looking outside of our conventional options in mental health, addiction, and trauma-based research. And I think as people are grasping for new ways or new forms of hope to see us through some of those big questions and those big challenges, um, psychedelics, once again, I think inspire a different way of thinking across disciplines, across knowledge groups, if you will, and thinking about ways that we might shake up the conventions of mental health treatments. Well, Erica, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Greg. My guest today was Erica Dick. She and Jesse Donaldson co-authored The Acid Room, The Psychedelic Trials and Tribulations of Hollywood Hospital, published by Anvil Press, an independent commercial publisher in Vancouver. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. 
If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshaldon. This interview was recorded on November 16, 2021. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.